Part Two, Chapter Nine of the Beach of Dreams. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading done by Jules Harlock. The Beach of Dreams by H. D. Verstackpool. Part Two, Chapter Nine. The Woolly it was the wind the woolly which is the fist of kerguelen suddenly clenched and hitting out from the shoulder of the great islands now suddenly stormed about with foam and veiled in spray half stunned she twisted round still lying but fronting it now with her arm protecting her face the beach had loudened up in thunder from end to end but the yelling woolly as it met the cliffs and howled inland almost drowned the thunder of the waves then it died down as suddenly as it had come and the boom of the surf rose high as the girl gathering herself together got up and struggled on she was no longer thinking of her hair it was the first lesson of the school of kerguelen here you shall think of nothing but the moment of the ground beneath your feet of the bite you put in your mouth of the rock that stands before you when she reached the cave with her petticoats thrusting about her she was met by the two men and as she came up to them latouche was cursing the wind the woolly had all but blown him down too he had got up sooner than bompard and had received the full face of it in the pit of the stomach he seemed to look on it as a personal matter affecting him alone even as he spoke a sudden calm fell lasted for a moment and was followed by a howl from inland at a stroke the wind had changed right round and was blowing now from the mountains here in the shelter of the cliffs they scarcely felt it but the shift had raised an appalling cross sea right away to the islands there was nothing but tumbling foam waves standing up and fighting waves in a battle that spread for leagues it's well for us we didn't fall in with this yesterday said bompard a ship couldn't stand it and what ship will ever poke her nose in here to take us off do you think asked latouche this is what you get every day of the week if all accounts are true this and worse i tell you we've come to the wrong place there's no getting over it we've come to the wrong place well right or wrong here we are said bompard mon dieu to hear you talk you'd think we'd come here on purpose come get a move on and let's have some grub he turned into the cave and they fetched out a can of beef they had opened yesterday some biscuits and a water-breaker and sitting at the cave mouth they ate just as the men of the stone age ate with the palms of their hands for plates and their fingers for forks they spoke scarcely at all the ill-humour of latouche seemed like a contagious disease even bompard the imperturbable seemed glum it was the girl who broke the strain suddenly she began to speak as if giving voice to carefully thought-out ideas yet what she said was absolutely spontaneous the result of a quick educated mind suddenly grasping the essentials of their position 
suggesting breeding suggestion. There's no use in grumbling, said she. That wind knocked me down as I was coming along the beach. I didn't grumble, and there is no use in thinking. I was thinking as I walked along that I had no brush and comb to do my hair with. You two have short hair, and you can't imagine what it is to a person with long hair when they find themselves without a brush and comb. I was grumbling to myself about it when the wind knocked me down. I want just to tell you what is in my mind. We will die or go mad if we do not forget everything as much as we can and not think of tomorrow or yesterday or ships coming to take us off. We have to fight all sorts of things that don't care in the least for us and we have to work. Everything here is at work in its own way. Well, we must do as everything else does or dies. It's easy to say work, said Latouche, munching a biscuit. But what is one to work at? We want food, for one thing. Our provisions won't last forever. There's rabbits enough, said Bompart. Remember those rabbits we saw running out on the beach last evening. I can snare rabbits, all right, said Latouche. But where's the wire to make the snares with? See, we're caught everywhere. Wait, said Bompart. He got up and went down to the boat, hunted in one of the lockers and returned with a spool of wire. He flung it at Latouche. There's your wire, said he. Cleo's eyes brightened. The spool of wire seemed to her a fruit suddenly born from her words. She had accomplished something. It was perhaps the first real accomplishment in her life. Where did you get it from? asked Latouche. The forward locker, replied Bompart. Are there any other things in the locker? asked the girl. Oh, mon Dieu, yes, replied the old fellow. There's a lot of truck, but it's of no use to us. Let's go and see, said Cleo. She rose up and came down the beach, followed by the others. The wind from the mountains died away, but the sea torment remained, and, though the tide was breaking to ebb, the spray of the waves almost reached the boat. It had listed to one side by the woolly, but was undamaged, and the forward locker was still open as it had been left by the careless bombard. It was one of the boats used for fishing and deep-sea work, hence the contents of the locker. The steel head of a two-pronged fish spear, a fisherman's knife in its sheath with belt, a pasternoster, invaluable for the fathoms of fishing line attached, a small American axe with a head vaselined, a canvas housewife with sail needles, a few darning needles and some pack thread, and a number of odds and ends, including some extra heavy lead sinkers. Bompard looked on apathetically, and Latouche stood with his hands in his pocket as the girl fished the things out one by one, placing them, some on the sands and some on the thwarts of the boat. The things seemed to have no interest for the men, accustomed all their lives to being looked after as far as shelter and food were concerned. They seemed absolutely helpless in front of new conditions. Men are like that, especially men of the people, and when you read of Crusoe's and their wonderful doings on desert islands, you read romance. 
the quick trained mind of the girl seemed to see clearly where they could scarcely see at all she had imagination and she was a woman that is to say a being more gifted than man with prevision in affairs purely material bompard did not see any use in the axe and said so the girl with her hand resting on the gunwale of the boat stood like a housekeeper trying to explain to a mere male creature the use of some household implement we will want a fire and an axe will chop wood said she ay and where are you to get the wood asked latouche there's not a tree on this blasted place not the sign of one well we'll have to look there may be trees inland there's sure to be bushes of some sort anyhow we will take these things up to the cave they will be safer there the bailing tin of the boat caught her eye she included it amongst her prizes this bailing tin like the psychological instrument exhibited the mind of bompart as though that said mind had been scooped out and placed in it to him it was a bailing tin here there was no boats to be bailed out where was the use of it to the woman it was a possible pot to boil things in if they could get a fire and things to boil she explained and bompart saw the light latoche saw it too but promptly pointed out that they had no fire and nothing to boil he seemed to find an odious satisfaction in the fact a satisfaction which bompart faintly reflected and for a moment the girl seemed to glimpse in the two men a lethargy of mind almost unthinkable a lethargy and laziness mulish and kicking at anything that disturbed it that actually fought against betterment because betterment meant exercise of intellect and action she felt angry with them just as a grown person feels angry with lazy children and putting the belt with a knife round her waist and picking up some of her treasures she ordered the others to follow with the rest when they had been placed in the cave with the provisions bompart after his great labours cut himself some tobacco and latouche lit his pipe then they sat down at their cave opening to smoke and rest themselves whilst the girl who could not keep still went back to the boat to explore the other lockers and see if by chance anything else of a useful nature might be found the two men seated smoking at the cave mouth watched her as she went she felt their eyes upon her and guessed that they were discussing her but she did not mind the ceaseless activity of old madame de warren seemed to have descended on her through the air of kerguelen the will that prince selim had divined in her had been aroused the surroundings seemed to call her to action from every side the past and the future seemed fathoms before the tremendous and insistent present fate could perhaps have broken her spirit only in one way by casting her upon the sordid if she had been socially shipwrecked and thrown on to a paris slum she might have gone under here where everything was clean where the air was life where nothing was sordid she swam here she was miraculously filled with a new energy and a, an extraordinary new interest as though she were peeping at things for the very first time 
The forward locker was now empty. She hunted in the others and discovered two more Macanachie tins that Bompard had overlooked. Some cotton waste, a roll of thick copper wire, and a broad all. She collected the lot and brought them up to the cave before which her companions were seated. She handed them to Latouche, who, without getting up, leaned back and pushed them as far into the cave as he could reach. Then he resumed his pipe, whilst Cleo, standing and shading her eyes, looked away and down the beach as though measuring its possibilities. I found a lot of things down there this morning, before the tide was high, said she. There were starfish, big ones like what I've seen on the beach at Bordighera. The Italian people eat them. I'm sure there must be lots of food to be found here on the beach. Then there's a big break in the cliffs lower down that seem to lead inland. I think the best thing we can do is to start now and hunt about and see what we can find. You two can go inland and I will go along the beach. It's absolutely necessary to find any sort of food and wood to make a fire. The smokers were disposed to argue. Yes, it was quite true. One must look round. But there was grub enough for a month and there was plenty of time before them. Then Latouche began to argue about starfish. He had never heard of people eating starfish. If they were to be condemned to eat stuff like that, it would be better to quit. One might have fancied from his tone that it was Cleo's fault that such a suggestion should be made. Cleo listened patiently and Bompard sat evidently approving. It was almost as though the two were in league against her, just as children get in league against an adult who insists on unpleasant duties or uncongenial food. But a will was at work stronger than theirs, and presently, tapping out their pipes, they rose up. Latouche, at her direction, placed the new-found Maconachie tins, the cotton waste, the broadall, and the wire, with the rest of the stores, far back in the cave. And then... Following her, they lumbered along down the beach in the direction of the cliff break like two schoolboys after a governess. The cliff break was a narrow gully piercing the basalt and bending it upon itself. Here they parted, the men striking up the gully and the girl continuing her way along the beach. And be sure to look out for some wood, she cried after them, any sort of wood. Aye, aye, said Bompart. We'll be on the lookout right enough. Then they vanished, and she pursued her way alone, picking up things as she went, turning over shells and thinking of her companions. The wind had fanned up again to a strong breeze, but the sound of the surf had fallen with the receding tide, and the stretch of wet sand below high tide mark was strewn with huge kelp ribbons, masses of seaweed, shells all empty, cuttlefish bones, and the starfish despised of Latouche. Then she came upon something that gave her a grue. It seemed at first like a white rock. It was a skull the skull of some enormous creature half bedded in the sand just above the tide mark possibly cast up in some storm she thought it might be a skull of a whale and as she stood looking at it suddenly 
the desolation around came in upon her with the fact that she was absolutely alone suppose the men lost their way suppose they never came back the thought clutched her heart like a hand to be here alone absolutely alone forever for a moment panic seized her and the wild impulse came upon her to turn and run back to the cave then she mastered herself fighting down the surging in her throat and continuing her way steadily and with renewed strength she had not cast the thought away she had mastered it and as she went she contemplated it as a victor contemplates the dead body of an assailant then she saw the penguins she had not noticed them before they were drawn up in long lines at the base of the cliff and the sight of them destroyed the desolation just as the skull had crystallized it around her a great powwow was going on amongst the penguins three birds separate from the others were standing two facing one another bowing and discussing something the third standing by putting in a word now and then and now and then coming right between the the disputants she watched them for a while and then went on she had no time to waste the thought of coming back empty-handed after all her talk to the men pursued her she was looking for food and had found none nothing but the starfish the gulls evidently found plenty of food but for a human being there seemed nothing and as she went on and on the thought of what would happen when those tins in the cave were empty came at her just as the terror of finding herself alone had come and this thought was not to be combated by an effort of will simply because it was born of reason her clear and practical mind saw starvation overleap the slender food barrier that held hunger only a month away from them and wandered in a wilderness where nothing was she had reached the rock surface now that stretched away level and smooth broken by cracks and potholes and strewn here and there with weed the cliffs had fallen away giving a view of the broken country and the mountains with their snow-covered tops immense wrapped in distance under the dull gray day remote yet clearly defined in that air crystal clear as the air of iceland it was like looking at silence herself silence set off and explained by the beach noises the sound of the surf the calling of the terns the mewing of the great white gulls she saw kerguelen as it is as it was as it ever will be standing there alone she saw it for the first time in all its utter nakedness if no food were to be found on the busy beach what food could be found in that carved silent cruel land where not a single tree showed in all the miles of desolation a stealthy scraping sound behind her made her wheel around up from the rock pond where she had passed without examining had risen a crab its body not bigger than two fists of a man put together yet it moved standing high up like a spider on slender stilts that it if stretched out would have measured four feet or more she watched it with dilated eyes as it scrambled and hurried along vanishing at last like a spectre in some cleft of rock there was something of a skeleton about it as well as something of a spider 
It was like a caricature of food drawn by famine. It made the whole beach hideous for a moment, and it made the food hunter almost afraid to go on. She crushed the fear and went on, reaching a place where the rocks ceased and a broad level of sand stretched to where the rocks began again, and further on the river ran down. Where the sand met the further rocks a huge conical stone stood, with a gull roosting on its top, and just as a person fixes on some object as the limit of his walk, she determined to go as far as this stone, and then turn back. As she drew close to it, the gull flapped its wings and flew away, and she saw that the thing was not a stone, but the figurehead of a ship, the form of a woman with ample breasts, broken and scarred by years of weather and stained with the droppings of gulls. The arms were gone, but the great face remained almost in its entirety, staring away across the sands and the sea. It had once worn a crown, but the crown was broken away all but a little bit on the left side of the head, and it had an appearance of life that almost daunted the girl as she stood looking, watching it, and listening to the singing sound of the beach echoes, and the mewing and the crying of the gulls. Then as she moved closer her foot struck on something half buried in the sand. It was a bulk of timber, ship's timber, was all about, sanded over and in places half uncovered. Here was firewood enough for twenty years. In the figurehead alone there was enough to supply their wants for a long time to come. She sat down to rest on a projecting piece of this timber near the figure. Close up to it like this it lost its touch of life and became simply a block of wood, and from this point she could see the beach over which she had travelled stretching away and away to the lizard point with the foam breaking around it and flown about by the never-resting gulls. She had come nearly three miles, and she had found something worth finding by just keeping on. She remembered the spectre crab. It had nearly turned her back empty-handed, but she had kept on, and she registered that fact deeply in her mind, dwelling on it with a pleasure she had never felt before. Then she fell to thinking of the ship that all this belonged to, and the storm that must have driven it here. The weeds of the high tide mark did not come within ten feet of the wreckage, so the waves must have come a hundred feet or more beyond where she was sitting. Perhaps it was at night, with all this coast roaring in the darkness and the wind yelling above the shouting of the waves, and all that must have happened years ago, to judge by the work of the weather on the once gaily painted woman and the depth the timber had sunk in the sand. She rose up, and before starting back she glanced inland towards the mountains across the broken country. Then she shaded her eyes. Beyond the fringe of the beach and amongst the high broken rocks stood a cross. End of Part 2 Chapter 9